to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. Believe me, if I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Exploring Evil, a bi-weekly podcast delving deep into the depths of evil men and women who are lesser-known serial killers and the acts they committed. Tonight's show is about the tourniquet killer from Houston who was responsible for the deaths, rape, and molestation of children and adults. I hope you like the show, and please give us a five-star review, subscribe, and tell your friends and enemies about us. September 26, 1986, 6.30 a.m. A dark-haired, brown-eyed 14-year-old girl makes her way down a familiar street towards the Houston Metro bus stop like she did every school day. Her name was Laura Lee Tremblay, and she was tall and mature for her age. A man in a van slows down next to her and offers her a ride to school. She is apprehensive, but she accepts. Once he has her in his car, his demeanor changes, and he attempts to sexually assault the young girl in his van. He then strangles the young girl with a cord and dumps her lifeless body just three miles from her home behind a Mexican restaurant. The killer slips away, going unnoticed as he's able to blend in with his surroundings. The murder puzzles investigators, says Houston Police Sergeant John Swaim. Tremblay hadn't been robbed or sexually assaulted, but they would later find out that there was an attempted sexual assault and Tremblay was strangled to death. Unbeknownst to the police, the killer had injured his hand during the strangulation, and this would lead him to a killing style that earned him the name, the Tourniquet Killer. April 16, 1992, in Harris County, Texas, a call came in about a Hispanic female who was sexually assaulted and strangled to death with a cord. The killer dumped the victim's body behind a Dairy Queen restaurant. Her panties were down around her knees and she had a tourniquet wrapped around her neck. Police were able to recover scrapings under her fingernails to get a DNA profile. She was a Mexican immigrant named Maria del Carmen Estrada. Maria was a Mexican immigrant from the state of Guerrero who came to the United States to have a better life. She was a small, petite woman standing at a height of 5 foot 1 inch and weighing just 104 pounds. She was only 21 years old and worked as a nanny with her best friend Rosa. 
Rosa was waiting for Maria to come to her house, watching the news, when she saw the covered body of a murder victim with a distinctive shoe style on TV. She drove to the scene fearing the worst and ended up giving a positive ID on her best friend. She was devastated. In Maria Estrada's murder, the police screened a lot of DNA from possible suspects, but no matches were found. They said her boyfriend had a solid alibi, so they turned to a list of registered sex offenders, but after six months, the case went cold. October 19, 1993. A man entered the home of 14-year-old Selma Jansky, then bound her and put duct tape over her eyes and mouth. Then the man sexually assaulted her. However, he did not kill her and instead fled the scene on foot. Jansky was able to kick him off of her and she survived. She said that something just clicked during the assault that she was fighting for her life. Jansky said he threatened her before leaving, saying that he watched her come home from school and knew she played soccer. August 8, 1994, midday, a nine-year-old Latina girl named Diana Rebelar is making a short walk from her duplex to the Wang Fong Market to get her mom some sugar just three blocks away. She gets the sugar and leaves the store, never to be seen alive again. She was found the next day on a loading dock behind a building, beaten badly, sexually assaulted, and strangled with a bamboo stick and parachute cord. She was found wearing nothing but her black Halloween t-shirt. One lead for police was given by a neighbor who described a van that frequented the area. She was connected to the Maria del Carmen Estrada case by the killer's modus operandi. A parachute cord with a bamboo stick forming a tourniquet was found around her neck. Houston PD detective Bob King orders a search for DNA evidence, but there was none left behind. July 6, 1995, 16-year-old Dana Sanchez was walking to her boyfriend's house when she was offered a ride in the killer's van. He made advances towards her, which she resisted and said she had a boyfriend. She was then sexually assaulted and strangled. Seven days later, an anonymous tip directed the police to her body in a Harris County field. She had been strangled with a rope and toothbrush tourniquet. The victim profiles loosely matched, according to Detective King. The girls were all small in stature, had long black hair, which he says they thought the killer used to control them, and three of the four were killed with a tourniquet. A task force was formed to try to find the killer, but after six months and no leads, the task force was disbanded. It was kept hush-hush in the media so the public wouldn't become panicked. Seven years later, in 2003, the cold case squad comes back to the tourniquet killer's cases. The maligned Houston crime lab that had been shut down due to questionable practices failed to detect the DNA match earlier. 
But with advances in DNA technology, investigators sent the tourniquets to Orchard Cellmark Labs in Dallas for testing. The DNA from Maria Estrada's fingernails provided a DNA profile, which was entered into CODIS, a DNA databank of known offenders. They get a match. The Tourniquet Killer Tourniquet, a device used for stopping the blood flow through an artery. The instrument was similar to a twitch, a tool used by farmers to control horses. Police believe the killer liked the tourniquet because he could let his victim pass out and almost die before letting the blood flow again and repeating this routine to torture his victims. Anthony Allen, Tony Shore, is known around town for his aptitude at a piano and plays jazz night at a local club where he was known as Tony the Telephone Man because he worked for the telephone company installing lines. Some people that knew him said he was kind, friendly, helpful, and charismatic, but others saw a dark side. Tony Shore was born in June 1962 in South Dakota. He was a white male serial killer who earned the title the tourniquet killer for murders he committed in and around Houston, Texas from 1986 to 1995. Even as a kid, Tony's sister Gina said he was groping girls. He would send his sister to the door of girls he wanted to fondle. She would get them to come outside where he would then grope and try to fondle them. One time she knocked on a door of one of her teachers, and that's the last time she procured a victim for her brother. She said he stabbed a kitten to death when he was only four years old. Tony was a competitive kid who picked up guitar and piano easily. He won mention in the local newspaper, Sacramento Bee, for a Bach musette he played when he was just five years old. He was unpopular, arrogant, and cried a lot. He got beat up by his classmates a lot, sometimes very badly. His sister remembers that he didn't like to get dirty, and he liked to use big words and once raised his hand in class and told his teacher, quote, I have to defecate. When he was 13, living in Orlando, Tony told his sister that he and some friends beat a homeless person up so bad he thought they may have killed him. In Sacramento, when he was 14, Tony's parents got a divorce, but his mother, Deanna, said Tony was, quote, glad to be rid of his father, Rob. After that, Deanna was going to school and held several jobs, so she wasn't home much, but said Tony was a big help. She also said Tony was a handsome kid who liked tight pants and gold chains, which were popular in that era. She said he always seemed to have a girlfriend. In high school, he would take his sister Gina out and pick up younger girls, but once they got in the car, he would drop Gina off, and she said she thought that he molested them. But he was her brother and friend, so she didn't tell anyone. Tony dropped out of community college when he was 21, moved to Texas to take a job with the phone company, and got married. He married Gina Lynn Worley in 1983 and had two daughters. Even Shore's wife didn't seem to realize what she was dealing with. 
In April 1993, the same year he allegedly raped a 14-year-old girl, he and Gina separated. Gina agreed to pay him $75 a week in child support, and he got custody of their daughters. His sister says he still trolled high schools, even though he was married and much older than the kids at the high schools. At 24, Shore became a killer. Tony's father was living in Clear Lake Shores, not far from his son in Houston, but their relationship had grown strained. When the two bumped into each other at the Westheimer Art Festival one spring, Tony didn't have much to say. Rob's wife, Rose, thought he was on drugs. He seemed to drop by his father's house only when he had a new girlfriend to show off. When Tony was 33, that girlfriend was Amy Lynch an 18-year-old high school student. Friends say he'd worked on her family's telephone line and arranged an introduction after noticing her picture. The appeal of such a younger woman was evident. Rose Shore remembers Tony visiting them that Easter with his daughters and girlfriend. Amy eagerly blurted out that Tony had told them all what to wear, from their dresses to their socks and shoes. He was in control at that point, Rose says. They had to do what he said. They were dressed well, but it was definitely a red flag. His sister came to visit after earning her degree in psychology a few years after Tremblay's murder. She became convinced her brother was molesting his older daughter, who was then about five years old. He insisted on bathing her himself, kissing her on the lips, and ignored the typical father-daughter boundaries, Gina says. When Gina complained to her mother, Deanna Shore was unconvinced. She told her to call Children's Protective Services if she was concerned. Gina says she did call, but she never heard back. Deanna visited soon after and didn't notice signs of abuse, but one thing seemed odd. There was no food anywhere in the house. She also noticed that Tony and his wife's bedroom was off-limits to their kids. It felt very strange to me, she said. Two years after Tony and Amy got together, in the spring of 1997, Tony called his mother in California and told her he was getting married. He asked if he could send his daughters for a long visit during the honeymoon. When Deanna declined, his charm abruptly turned into a threat. If you don't see them now, you never will. It was not a good time for me, Deanna Shore says, but I said okay. When they arrived, Deanna knew something was wrong. The girls, now 12 and 13, were silent. They stuck close together, Deanna said, and although it was nearly 100 degrees in Sacramento, they insisted on wearing layers of clothing. Frustrated, Deanna sent the younger girl to visit Gina, Tony's sister, in Washington State. Deanna was convinced they'd been molested. Deanna told Gina, I'm not going to ask, but if we split them up, they may volunteer it. In Washington, the truth came out. Gina had been complaining about a situation at work and said, Do you ever feel like something is totally unjustified? 
Shore's daughter turned ashen. How do you know about that? She gasped. Amy Lynch said that Tony had her convinced that he'd done nothing wrong to the point that they sold all of their musical instruments and she liquidated her house to pay for lawyers. He then pleaded guilty for molesting his own two daughters throughout their childhood. He was given a plea deal for the acts against his daughters, which amounted to a $500 fine and eight years of supervised probation. He also had to register as a sex offender and give a sample of his DNA to law enforcement. Inexplicably, the judge did not force Tony to move, even though his backyard butted up against an elementary school playground. But DNA would be his downfall. Deanna says that Tony's ex-wife began making late-night calls to her, telling her in slurred words that Deanna really knew nothing about her son. You don't even know that he killed someone, she quotes the ex as saying. Deanna reasoned that she was just bitter. Honey, she remembers telling Gina, you're drunk. For Tony Shore's mother, the truth still hadn't registered. Some of Shore's relatives, however, began to suspect that he had taken a wrong turn in life. He was always halfway slurry to me, says Ogaretta Worley, his mother-in-law. I thought he was messing with the dope. He always looked at me suspicious, like I was looking through him. Everyone who might have stopped him, from relatives to social workers to prosecutors, seemed to be looking the other way. Even the people who detected his odd behavior failed to put the pieces together. And as Houston police detectives worked tirelessly to catch the killer, their own DNA lab failed to test the evidence that could connect Shore to the crimes. In the end, it was left to science to nab him. But by then, it was too late. Shore was arrested on October 24, 2003 at his home. To say I was shocked was putting it mildly, says his then-girlfriend Linda, who asked that her full name not be used. Pretty much everything he had told me was not true, and to have 15 homicide detectives at your house one night, she stops. Then she says, I never would have guessed anything like that. Investigators believe Shore probably expected to be discovered. He was waiting for that hammer to fall, and it fell, Detective Swaim said. Shore admitted to the killings during an interrogation. Then he added, Now I'm going to tell you something you don't know, and confessed to Tremblay's murder, as well as the rape of the teenager in 1993. In every case, he assured police he had a justification. He'd been dating Trembling, he said, and he had to strangle her when she promised to tell his wife. He later told family members that one of his victims had been in his daughter's school, and another had heard his band play. 
Swaim is convinced that the story is a web of lies. They tell you just enough, but not enough to make themselves look bad, he said. My idea is he was giving himself an out. I'm not as bad as you think. We had a relationship. He has an explanation for everything. Investigators differ on whether Shore committed more murders in the five years after giving his DNA sample. Officers looked at all the cases of unsolved females that fit his M.O., Swaim says, but he believes the last killing was Sanchez in 1995. Swaim knows Shore had a habit of picking up women and making his move, but he doesn't believe he killed them. There would be bodies strewn all over the place. My friends say, you're crazy. You're telling me this guy didn't do any other stuff for so many years? But maybe we do have all he did. Billingsley concedes that a majority of investigators think there are more victims. But if so, why wouldn't Shore admit to them? We can only kill him so many times. Why not admit to all of them? Detective Billingsley believes Shore wants to be the center of attention. After all, he says... He called to report Sanchez's body nine years ago. He seems to enjoy the questioning. He's got this attention now, and he can keep us hanging. Tony Shore was scheduled for court on capital murder charges, but even his family doesn't contend he is innocent. In a statement of facts from the trial, Shore confessed to committing four murders in which he attacked and sexually assaulted or attempted to sexually assault his victims, an aggravated sexual assault that did not end in murder, and the sexual molestation of two children. On September 26, 1986, Shore murdered 14-year-old Laura Lee Trembley while attempting to sexually assault her. In discussing this crime, Shore stated that he was preoccupied with young girls and that he had met Trembley by giving her rides on a semi-regular basis. During one of these rides, Shore, then 24 years old, became sexually aggressive and unhooked the 14-year-old's bra. She demanded that he stopped, and the two argued. Shore hit Trembley in the back of the head and then used a cotton cord to strangle her. According to Shore, the cord kept breaking and he injured his finger while tightening the ligature. I tried to make sure she would never ever tell anybody, Shore said. The strangulation left a knuckle impression on the back of Trembley's neck and the cord itself left two distinct pressure lines. Shore then dumped the victim's body behind a restaurant. The crime remained unsolved until 2003. On April 16, 1992, Shore, at 29 years old, gave a ride to 20-year-old Maria del Carmen Estrada, the victim in this capital murder prosecution. Recounting the event, Shore stated that she, quote, freaked out when he made sexual advances towards her, but he persisted in his attack, using a pair of shears to aid his attempt to rape her. He ultimately strangled Estrada by twisting a nylon cord around her neck and tightening it with a piece of wood. As in his first murder, Shore dumped the victim's body behind a restaurant and left. When Estrada's body was found, signs of trauma were apparent on her face. Her pants had been removed, her underpants and hose had been pulled below her pubic area, her shirt was open, her bra had been cut, and her hose appeared to be cut in the crotch. An examination revealed that Estrada had internal damage as well. The crime remained unsolved until 2003. About a year and a half later, at 31, Shore became infatuated with a 14-year-old student who was often home alone after school. 
On October 19, 1993, she came home to find Shore waiting for her. He was wearing baggy clothes, surgical gloves, sunglasses, and a bandana over his face. Shore bound the girl's hands with an electrical cord and wrapped her head in duct tape. He took her into the bedroom, took off her pants, and cut her panties off with a knife. He then raped the girl as she screamed and cried. Before fleeing her home, Shore threatened that he would return and kill her and her family if she reported the crime. A sexual assault examination revealed that semen was present. DNA recovered from that semen eventually pointed to Shore as its source. Shore admitted to this crime, saying that he had watched the girl during his work as a, quote, telephone man. He admitted that he fantasized about her and wanted to rape but not murder her. This depraved desire, he believed, was proof that he could, quote, beat the evilness by possessing and controlling another human being without killing her. Again, the crime remained unsolved until 2003. The next year, on August 7, 1994, Shore, at 32 years old, abducted, raped, or attempted to rape and killed 9-year-old Diana Rebelar. He recounted that he saw the child walking down the street while he was driving a van. He pulled into a parking lot and began talking to her. Noticing that nobody else was around, Shore grabbed Rebelar, threw her into the van, duct-taped her hands and feet, drove behind a building, and then attacked her. Her body was later found on the loading dock of a building, naked except for her black t-shirt which had been pulled up to her armpits. Shore, again, admitted to killing her by strangulation. A rope with a bamboo stick attached to it was found around Rebelar's neck. This crime also remained unsolved until 2003. On or soon after July 6, 1995, Shore saw 16-year-old Dana Sanchez at a payphone. Shore was 33. He stated that Sanchez appeared angry and he offered her a ride. Sanchez accepted the ride, but soon objected when Shore began touching her. She tried to evade him, but he pulled her into the back of the van and restrained her after she bit his chest. He then removed her clothes. Shore claimed that he did not sexually assault Sanchez, but admitted that he did kill her. Sanchez's decomposed body was found after Shore made an anonymous phone call to a television news station reporting that there was a, quote, serial killer out there, and giving the body's location and a detailed description of the victim. The nude body was found with a yellow rope wrapped around its neck and a toothbrush was twisted in the ligature with a knot. Like the other murders, this crime remained unsolved until 2003. About two and a half years after killing Sanchez, Shore pled no contest to two charges of indecency with a child. The two victims were his own children. Shore was charged with sexually molesting his older daughter from the time she was in kindergarten until she was 13. She testified that Shore would touch her breast, vagina, and anus as she pretended to sleep and that he would stand unclothed at the doorway to her and her younger sister's bedroom and touch himself inappropriately. Shore also began molesting his younger daughter and both girls eventually informed their aunt of the assaults. He was placed on deferred adjudication community supervision. On October 17, 2003, about 11 and a half years after the Estrada assault and killing, Houston homicide detective Robert King forwarded evidence of the unsolved Estrada murder to Orchid Cellmark for DNA analysis. 
Shore's DNA profile from the sample he had been required to give when he was placed on deferred adjudication for molesting his daughters, and which was included in the CODIS databank, matched DNA found on Estrada's body. Shore was arrested for the murder. He confessed to that crime, as well as to the murders of Trembley, Rebelar, and Sanchez, and the aggravated sexual assault of the 14-year-old student. The state sought capital murder conviction against Shore in the Estrada case. After the guilt phase of the trial, the jury found Shore guilty, and, at the punishment phase, it learned of the three other murders and the aggravated sexual assault, as well as Shore's molestation of his two daughters. Additionally, the jury learned that Shore would frequently drug and choke his adult sex partners and have intercourse with them while they were unconscious or semi-unconscious. The jury answered the special issues in favor of assessing the death penalty, and Shore was sentenced to death on October 21, 2004, which is, ironically, what Shore asked the jury for. Rob Shore, Tony's father, says he believes in the death penalty. He doesn't think his son deserves an exemption. Fair is fair and right is right, Rob says simply. Tony has twice written him long letters from jail full of explanations. Tony claims his mother molested him as a child. Deanna even underwent hypnosis to see if that could be true, but came up with nothing to support the claim. Rob doesn't believe in such allegations either, nor does he write back. Rose, Rob's current wife, wonders how Tony could have turned into such a cold-blooded killer. He wanted his father's attention more than anything, she offers, but his dad didn't know that. He was mad at his dad most of the time, and his dad didn't even know it. Deanna Shore was 57 when she started as a mother again. Her granddaughters initially had no clothes, beds, or shoes. Despite his promises, Tony never sent child support. Raising the girls was also emotionally difficult. The older daughter couldn't sleep unless her 130-pound dog was in the room. She also developed a habit of igniting her stuffed animals. The younger one had nightmares about her dad. They were not the kind of children that grandparents long for, Deanna says dryly. As for her son, there's part of me that loves him and always will, that loves the child he was. If the other part existed then, I don't see it. But he was also every woman's nightmare. Deanna and her daughter flew to Houston to visit Tony. Rob drove them to the Harris County Jail, but when they went in, he sat in the car and waited. Even cuffed, even in a bright orange jumpsuit, Tony Shore was completely unselfconscious. He said that he was working on a book of memoirs. He claimed that he was right with God. He was just as friendly as if he was having tea with us, Deanna marvels. He didn't deny anything, but he didn't admit to the murders either. I know I'm forgiven, he said. What about the parents of the murdered girls, Deanna asked him. How could they forgive him? He told her they had a right to feel that way. They left without any real answers. Tony has continued to write. His mother and sister read his letters, but they don't really believe anything he says. 
Deanna's therapist warned that her letters were classically sociopathic. He praises her, then asks for something, or he plays the guilt card. He blames it all on cocaine, she says. In letters to his sister, Gina, Tony seems to be reveling in his notoriety. He asks for copies of any newspaper stories she can find about this case. He doesn't talk about the guilt. He never says he's sorry. Most of what he writes about, she says, is his book. As for the family and friends of Tony Shore's victims, they just struggle to get through each day. Anthony Shore was scheduled to be put to death on October 18, 2017, but was granted a stay of execution to investigate a claim that another inmate had persuaded Shore to take credit for a crime he, Larry Swearingson, had been sentenced to death for. Now to some breaking news, a 90-day reprieve for one of Houston's most notorious criminals, the so-called tourniquet killer. Anthony Allen Shore confessed to the murders of at least three girls and one woman between 1986 and 1995. He was scheduled to be put to death tonight, but this afternoon it was delayed. He was held at Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas, and was executed on January 18, 2018, by lethal injection at the age of 55. His final words were, No amount of words or apology can ever undo what I've done. I wish I could undo the past, but it's done. When he was given the injection, he said, I can feel that. It burns. Some, including Shore's family, suspect him of more rapes and murders. His sister Laurel told the newspaper, Everywhere we've lived, there's been a rapist. Shore claims to have perpetrated copycat rapes of the East Area rapists when he lived in California. He has also been mentioned as a suspect in the Calder Road killings, the I-45 killings, and the Texas Killing Fields, which are all names given to a series of murder victims found on Calder oil fields near Houston. The Texas Killing Fields is an area bordering the Calder oil field, which is a 25-acre patch of land situated a mile from Interstate Highway 45. Since the early 70s, 30 bodies of murder victims have been found within the Killing Fields area. These were mainly the bodies of girls or young women. Furthermore, many of the girls have disappeared from this area. The girls' bodies, if deceased, are still missing. It's believed that many of the murders are the work of serial killers. Most of the victims were aged 12 to 25 years and shared similar physical features. Despite exhaustive efforts by League City Police, along with the assistance of the FBI, very few of these murders have been solved, and those that have were confessed from prison. The fields have been described as, quote, a perfect place for killing somebody and getting away with it. After visiting some of the site's recovered bodies in League City, Amy Mann, director of the film Texas Killing Fields, commented, you could actually see the refineries that are in the south end of League City. You could see the I-45, but if you yelled, no one would hear you, and if you ran, there would be nowhere to go.
All right, let's give Tony Shore the classic psychopath test uh, that we found at HealthyPlace.com that we used on Sean Sellers previously. Is he superficially charming? Yes. Uh, A lot of people say that he was charismatic and friendly and outgoing and just a really cool guy to be around. So superficially, yeah, I believe he is charming. Even though uh, he wasn't popular with his peers growing up, it seems like he could probably turn the charm on a little bit when he needed to because he did get people to get into his car that probably knew it wasn't the best idea. Does he regularly tell lies? Of course. Uh, classic sociopath, psychopath, always tells lies, uh, keeps things hidden, has one uh, face that he puts on for the public, and then is a completely different person behind closed doors. Obviously, he was a monster. Does he have poor judgment? Uh, He seemed to do pretty well for himself in life. He just couldn't get over the fact that he needed to kill people. Um, Whether he he killed as a means to conceal the rapes that he committed or actually enjoyed the rape and the killing seems to be up in the air. Does he experience emotions? It doesn't seem like he does. Um, he, he, in all the research and study that I saw, he never seemed to get too excited or too down, was just kind of was there. Does he lack insight? Probably. Like I said, he thinks that people are going to be interested in his book, uh, the things that he's written about himself. Does he fake actions or responses? It seems like he does. I mean, that's a classic case where you get people to come with you or come to you to uh, get in your car or, you know, you go out hunting and you try and get these people to... um, believe what you're saying and kind of put them uh, at a disadvantage as far as they believe you're a good person, they believe you're friendly. Um, So faking actions, I think, is definite. Uh, He's a classic cobra. Uh, There's vipers and cobras that are serial killers, and vipers kind of wait for people to come to them, and cobras go out and hunt for people. So he's a classic cobra. He would go out and hunt. But he, you know, he also took advantage of his own children. So I'm not here to say that he's scientifically sick or not, but it's, it just seems like he's kind of just a piece of crap. So I, I would say he's, in my opinion, he's definitely a sociopath and doesn't seem to, you know, show any, any care or emotion for the people and the families that he's hurt. And, you know, at the end of... Uh, the podcast we saw that he said he's at peace with God and when his sister or mom asked him how the people of that he's affected you know the the victims families how they are going to be able to forgive him and he just says well they have a right to feel that way so again no emotion whatsoever like I said I couldn't find anything in his past that would suggest nurture had anything to do with the killer he turned out to be This is one of those cases that, you know, people that claim nurture is everything, I kind of have to disagree with and say that sometimes people are just born bad, and it seems like Tony Shore was just born bad. 
So pedophilia is a psychiatric disorder in which an adult or older adolescent experiences a primary or exclusive sexual attraction to prepubescent children. Although girls typically begin the process of puberty at age 10 or 11 and boys at age 11 or 12, criteria for pedophilia extends the cutoff point of prepubescence to age 13. A person must be at least 16 years old and at least 5 years older than the prepubescent child for the attraction to be diagnosed as pedophilia. So, maybe Tony's not a classic pedophile, but, you know, he did commit acts against his own children who were uh, very young. It's hard to tell if it was just the kids that he was interested in because he did go after... uh, you know, women that were over the age of 13, but I don't know, in my mind, uh, 13 is kind of a bad cutoff because, you know, they're still children. So while technically, according to the definition of the DSM-5 of pedophilia uh, does isn't met there, in my opinion, it's still pedophilia because they were children. Studies of pedophilia are very important because they can help us protect the people that we need to protect in our society, which are the innocent children. So Tony Shore is a piece of waste, and he has no business sharing the air that we human beings breathe. Uh, He may or may not have been a classic pedophile, but he just seemed to be a natural-born monster. So that's a wrap. Special thanks to Caleb Hipkins for writing and research. Remember to subscribe and leave a five-star review. And tell all your friends and enemies about us. And have a great evening. Thank you for listening to Exploring Evil.